thinking always in terms of scale. How can I scale this so that I can start to leverage my time and my resources, my expertise? So take freelance writing, for example. You start as a freelance writer, you're trading your time, you get paid for each article or each word or however you get paid. But eventually you start to get good and maybe you hire someone under you. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today, Justin and I are going to tackle some listener questions. But before we do that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Well, actually, just getting back to Texas last week, we spent the whole week on the road. We're going out there to Colorado for a work trip, for one of my work trips, and kind of tacked on a little bit of vacation on the end, and actually booked the flight so that when I went in on Monday, which was the day we were supposed to arrive, I got in really early, even though we're just kind of supposed to be meeting for a team dinner that night. Hurry up, land, get the car, go straight to Keystone, and got like two hours of runs in at Keystone. It was a beautiful bluebird day. Then we had our meetings on Tuesday, Wednesday, had a group ski day on Thursday, Took Friday kind of off, just chilled, and then uh, went back, skied some more Saturday. And then on Sunday, me and Leslie just kind of strung together a bunch of random things and ended up going to some really cool hot springs up in the mountains. And then right next door, I had seen online there was this place called like the Caverns Adventure Park. And we actually met some people at one of the hot tubs who were from Austin and we got to talking to them and they mentioned that they went there and really, uh, you know, recommended it. And so we go and you take this gondola up to the top. There's this crazy little sketchy roller coaster. It was a lot of fun and these huge caves. They give you tours in. And then uh, Monday, we we worked from the airport and got to enjoy a lot of time in the Amex Centurion Lounge, which is one of my favorite places. And they were slinging some special stuff for Valentine's Day on Monday. So we had like surf and turf with shrimp and steak, chocolate-covered strawberries, all kind of desserts. Like it was nuts. And of course, you know, the open bar is always nice. So that's that's what we were up to the last week. Sounds like you were staying busy, Justin. I was pretty busy as well, having fun in Aruba. It was pretty much 82 every day. They have one of the most consistent weather patterns. I was looking, I was like, is this just an anomaly or is it just we're getting really lucky this week? But nope, they stay between like 80 and 90 degrees for the entire year. It's nuts. So was really enjoying that instead of the dreary, freezing cold weather we had in Massachusetts. And we had a snowstorm while I was gone. Glad to miss all that. The excursions were a ton of fun. We were out in the water, pretty much in the beach or in the pool every single day. They had a swim up pool bar. So much fun stuff to do. Got to hang out with friends. There was 40 of us that went on this trip for a wedding reunion. And we had actually intentionally booked to get back. And this kind of sucked, but it was during Super Bowl Sunday because we had a house closing on Monday and it was my birthday, Valentine's Day. So we're all ready. We're in the airport. Our flight's scheduled for 3.30. Gets delayed. We're like, all right, whatever. It got delayed a couple hours. Keeps getting pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. Eventually, we're still in the airport. It's 9.30 p.m. And they go, sorry, guys, the flight to Boston can no longer be serviced. So (laughs) we had to then go back to the Airbnb that some of our friends were still staying at. We had fully planned on going home. And I'm sure, Justin, you know, I know you've been stuck before. It is the worst feeling ever when you're just all you want to do is get home. You've been in the airport. You've gone through customs. You've done all the stuff, checked all the boxes and you can't get there. 
So we got a flight booked, the early flight. And this again, this is island time. So the early flight the next day was noon. <laughs> so we have to cancel our closing on our Airbnb property. I had to cancel some meetings. There was just so many things that got interrupted from this flight, but finally made it home on Monday night. And then on Tuesday, we pushed the closing one day, finally closed on my first Airbnb property. So really excited to kind of get started with that, start furnishing it, do any updates that need to be done. And we can probably tackle that in a whole nother episode, but was inspired by all the guests we had on. I know we had Dia Lu back a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago and seeing her returns were just insane. But yeah, man, definitely a busy week with travel and with this house closing and lots of fun things to come. Yeah, I'm excited to see where your Airbnb goes because that's something we're filing all the paperwork right now. We're trying to, you know, we got a list built like a little combine board where we're trying to go through all the little things of like, okay, what needs to be done to get our house actually to where we can Airbnb it out. We're tossed around the idea of maybe, even though long-term we don't want to rent out rooms while we're living in it, we might do it a couple of times just to like work out the systems and the kinks and figure out, you know, how, how everything works and get feedback directly from people and be here to kind of help them through the situation in case we miss something. And then that way, when we get ready to actually rent it while we're abroad or whatever, we can just feel a lot more confident. Absolutely, man. Well, I'm not an expert yet, but hopefully I will become an expert in the next couple months, or at least I'll start to make the early mistakes, figure out what systems to put into place to make this thing successful. And then hopefully I'll be getting those returns, those 5x long-term rental returns with the short-term rentals. So we'll see what happens. All right, let's dive into some listener questions. So we kind of posted this all over on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. First one is from Brittany. So she said, people talk about paying off high interest debt, but what about HELOCs? You're only paying interest with a monthly payment. So should you pay it off ASAP or invest it? And after the investment grows to the principal amount, so the principal amount of that HELOC, however much you took out, pay it off. The interest rate is 4%, but it is variable. All right, Justin, what are your initial thoughts on Brittany's situation? Yeah, you know, anytime you have these questions about like paying off debt with an interest, it's always a blend of like a psychological thing and the actual mathematical thing. Like people talk about paying their house off and that's always one of the most fun Twitter battles to ever, you know, get in and and watch is people arguing about if they should pay their house off early. And a lot of times it is. It's just like a psychological thing. Like the math says, you know, if you're down there and those, especially the way a lot of people's houses are two and a half, you know, 4%. It, it mathematically normally makes sense not to pay that off any faster than you have to. The part where she mentions about it being variable uh, makes me nervous. So I would definitely want to know what bounds that is. What is the likelihood? Um, you know, we know that rates are rising right now. Is there a cap on how much it can rise? But, you know, 4% for me personally is kind of right there at that fringe of like whether I'm paying it off as slowly as possible or I just want to go ahead and get rid of it even though, you know, the math says that you should be fine even up a little higher. So that's for me, like at 4%, I'm probably paying it off, but not in like a big hurry. Yeah. The variability is the part that scares me because it could be, I know for some commercial loans, it's like after five years, then it's just adjusted by whatever the fed interest rate is. We've been in interest rate environments. I mean, I haven't personally, but I know in like the eighties, it was like 17% or something like that. (laughs) So if you have a variable rate that's based on the fed or based on some other rate and your interest rate could potentially go to five or 6%, my friends, just like Justin mentioned is pretty much that 4% mark. I know a lot of times people ask about student loans. I'm like, if it's 4% or less, don't pay them off in a hurry. Just make the minimum payments and invest the difference. But Yeah, this is a tough question, Brittany. I wish we had just a really solid answer for you, but it really depends on that variability part and how you feel about having debt. Like if 
having debt makes you not sleep at night, then absolutely go and pay that off. I know that's a lot of the psychology behind the reason why people pay off debt. And Justin, we talked about this before. You've had friends and they're like, hey, should I you know, pay down my mortgage early or invest? And you're like, well, would you take you know, a 3% loan to invest all that money? And they're like, no. And you're like, well, then no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to pay off your mortgage early because that's essentially what you're doing. So thank you for the question, Brittany. Hopefully this was at least helpful in thinking that through. And I guess we'll move on to the next one from Elizabeth. So Elizabeth started getting to travel hacking, which Justin and I are huge into. Just booked a flight recently with some points. Uh, she said she started a year and a half ago and she's been earning miles and points for a big trip to Hawaii. The trip could be delayed another year due to COVID. She doesn't want to pay the annual fees, but also doesn't want to lose the points she earned. I heard that you can ask to have an annual fee waived or downgrade. So I'm planning to call each credit card company and see what I can do. I'm also wondering if I should transfer my husband's points to my account and close his accounts. This might hurt our credit score, but we don't have any major purchases. I guess I just don't know what to do. Any wisdom is much appreciated. So, and here are her her cards. She has a Sapphire Preferred. Her husband also has a Sapphire Preferred. She has an IHC Rewards. Her husband has an IHC Rewards. She has a World of Hyatt. All right. Awesome. Okay. So this is a nuanced question, but Elizabeth, I'm glad you asked it because let me just quickly, without getting into each one of your specific cards, there are some differences in the point systems. So something like a Chase Sapphire where you're getting Chase Ultimate Rewards points or something like a City card where you're getting City Thank You points, these points will go away if you just completely shut down that card. If you don't downgrade, if you don't do any of the other strategies that we'll probably talk about in a second here, you will lose the points to that card. Now that is very different from most of the airline and hotel cards where if you get, you know, it's issued by Chase Bank, but then the points just go to, let's say, American Airlines, or they go to IHG. Once you earn those points, those are sitting in your now American Airlines or IHG account. They're not sitting like in your Chase account. So if you close that credit card that Chase Bank issued you, that's fine. You'll still have all those points for that airline or for that hotel chain. So I just want to make that distinction quickly that, you know, not all points were created equal. I do like Chase Ultimate Rewards points, but You know, if you do close that card and you earn a bunch of points, unfortunately, if you don't downgrade to like a Chase Freedom or something, you're going to lose all of them. We'll be right back after a quick word for our amazing sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. It's a new year, 2022, but it's feeling harder than ever to find and hire the qualified people you need, especially for small businesses and especially during the great resignation. That's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. They make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. I recently hired a video editor and having a platform where I could filter through qualified candidates made it so much easier. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach qualified candidates and beyond on the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Plus with the LinkedIn jobs filtering features, it's so easy to figure out who is right and who is wrong for your business. That's why LinkedIn jobs is rated number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. But basically, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fyshow. That's linkedin.com slash fyshow to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, Cody, I mean, those are some good points, like thinking through what kind of points that they are, like are they, or do they go to a certain brand or are they these more generic, like for the credit card company? Um, you know, I know she mentions uh, asking about being able to downgrade it or maybe uh, get the annual fee waived. If she's never asked for the annual fee to be waived, there's a really good chance that she'll at least get a lot of it waived, if not if not all of it. 
The other thing too is to think about, are there other ways in which you can use those points that give you the same value as what you're going to spend on that trip and just go ahead and kind of tucking that away. Um, a good example is I just had to unfortunately close up my Chase Sapphire Reserve. I wasn't getting the value out of it anymore. And, you know, when I was in the military, I could have all these cards without paying annual fees. And now, you know, you don't really want to be sitting there holding three or four of these cards that charge you five, six hundred dollars a year in fees if a lot of the benefits are kind of stacked. And so I did have a good amount of points. It was also a long line of credit history. So I didn't like want to just like close it. But also if I just downgraded it to the lower chase kind of tier of cards, yeah, you know, I don't lose my line. Of, I don't lose my credit history. But the way you redeem those points, even though you still have chase points, the rules are different. So that's another thing to keep in mind. So like with the Chase Sapphire Reserve, there was an option in there where I could go in and kind of like pay myself back at one and a half times points, which was just as good as the kind of point redemption I would get on travel. And I could go in there and just like literally pick out all these transactions that I've already made and kind of cancel them out with points. The Chase Sapphire Preferred and the Freedoms, they'll have different rules and like maybe it'll let you pay yourself back at one and a half times, but maybe it's like only one or two categories. Like I know for the Freedom, um, Leslie's was showing, it was only for like charities, whereas mine I could do for anything. So literally the day I went in there to call and cancel that or to downgrade that card to a free tier, I just used all my points that day to get money back in a way that was just as valuable as if I would used it for travel. And so, yes, I would have to pay for travel in the future, but now I've just, you know, now I have a negative, whatever, $150 balance on my credit card. So there are other ways of like, you know, using those points for something that would give you the same value that you're going to get for the travel since you don't know exactly when the travel's coming. So diving into your specific cards, Elizabeth, so you mentioned you have the Sapphire Preferred and the IHG Rewards and the World of Hyatt, your husband has the Preferred and IHG. Justin mentioned if you have not tried to waive that annual fee, that is a great first move because you you do have the option of downgrading. So with the Sapphire Preferred, for example, you could downgrade to the Chase Freedom, but like Justin also mentioned, you might lose on a lot of that stuff. Like I know with the Chase Freedom, you actually can't book stuff through the portal with that card. It's just kind of a place to house your Chase Ultimate Rewards points. So all depends on what you want to do. You could combine points as well if you want to, you know, ha- transfer your husband's points over to your account and your husband cancels his card or he downgrades to the Chase Freedom. So you can kind of keep that length of credit history. With the IHC rewards and the World of Hyatt, like I mentioned before, with the hotels and airlines, with most of them anyway, both of those cards, you'll still keep those points even if you cancel the card. If you, do, if you don't want to hurt your length of credit history, I know you mentioned that you don't have any major purchases coming up, but if you do want to just kind of max out that length of credit history, first try to get that annual fee waived and keep this all kind of tracked in a spreadsheet or wherever on some to-do app. See if you can get that first annual fee waived. If you can't, then you can cancel the card. I don't know if those have available downgrades off the top of my head. If not, you can cancel the cards. It won't really impact your length of credit history too, too much if you already have a longer credit history. Now, if you're like 20, 21, 22 years old, which I was you know, that age getting credit cards, it really impacted my length of credit history when I closed a card. So I try to keep them open for as long as possible. So yeah, for you, if you want to close those hotel cards, keep the points, maybe you know, keep one of the Sapphires, transfer the other one over from your husband, downgrade one of the Sapphires to the Freedom, that could be an option. But again, there's a lot of nuance to this. I think 
if you've been listening for a while, Justin and I are always trying to, you know, poke holes in the brick wall and figure out what the best path is and not take the route that everyone else is taking. If you are creative, if you make phone calls to downgrade and to get the annual fee waived and do all these things that other people aren't doing, you are going to come out ahead. So hopefully that was helpful. All right. Next question, short and sweet best way to reduce taxes. Now, I will say if you are interested in like our full tax picture and how Justin and I are optimizing taxes to the max, check out episode 136 where it's called Mega Backdoor Roth and Solo 401k Explained. But maybe we can just quickly hit on it now, Justin, and you can lay out your tax scenario and how you're kind of maximizing your earned dollars to pay the least amount of taxes and then I'll lay out mine. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first things is like, what comes to my mind is how there's like these camps who say either Roth or traditional is like the best and there is no alternative. Like it's either one or the other. And I mean, there's a couple of things. One, there are many scenarios like Cody was just talking about with the, the mega backdoor where you, even if you are a big traditional fan, you're going to run out of money that you can put in a traditional, but there are ways to put more in a Roth. So like, why wouldn't you do that? So I think that's one thing is like, stop like pigeonholing yourself towards like only doing traditional or I'm only doing Roth. But that is the best way to lower your, that's like the most simple, efficient way to lower your tax burden is just to put money into those retirement accounts. You know, they raised the limit this year to 20,500. So between that and like your standard deductions, maybe you're married and, and your spouse doesn't work, or maybe your spouse makes less money, you know, all these things combined can get you down into a fairly low tax picture. You know, you could even geo arbitrage, right? Like there's many states like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Washington, you know, where you don't pay state taxes. And so it's something to do some math on. Like is is maybe in that state, if you wanted to buy a house and maybe their property taxes are higher because they got to make it up somewhere. Look at that versus what you make. If you're a high income earner, it could make a lot of sense to go to a different state. I mean, when we moved to Texas, even though property taxes are much more expensive here and the house values are high, we save way more money in income tax from the state level than we do pay in property tax. I would say the, on like the other end of things that maybe not to worry as much about or stress about, like if you don't have a really interesting tax situation and a lot of ways to draw deductions, then, you know, thinking about like keeping every little receipt when you do, when you take something like the Salvation Army or Goodwill or do some kind of charity work or, you know, all these things that people think about are like lowering your, you know, in the end, the standard deduction most of the time outweighs those like itemized things. And so you just kind of wasted your time. So unless you have like a situation um, where you can get a little more creative and, you know, some like you maybe run your own business or you have a lot of real estate or whatever it is to where it actually makes sense to do itemization for your tax deductions, then just don't stress about it. Right. Like don't, you know, don't, don't worry about keeping every little receipt for every little thing and, and, and worrying about all that because your standard deduction is probably going to greatly outweigh it anyway. One thing I'll say, and this is about complicating taxes, because this is one of the most common questions I get, because I'm always talking about side hustles. I love trying different side hustles. Having to pay taxes on a side hustle is a fantastic problem to have. I've had people come up to me and say, Cody, I don't want to start a side hustle because I don't want to worry about the tax implications. If you make $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 from a side hustle and you have to pay a CPA, you know, three or 400 bucks to prepare the returns for, you know, maybe you create an LLC, maybe you're doing it as a sole proprietor, but that is a fantastic problem to have. So if you're thinking that the reason why you don't want to make extra money or do extra things is because you don't want to complicate your tax situation, that is the wrong way to think about it. But what I will say is 
to keep things organized. I know Justin just mentioned that this, or I guess my first year as an entrepreneur was a rude awakening because I had everything on all these different credit cards. I was doing a bunch of travel hacking and I wasn't really like tracking every single month. And at the end of the year, it was like, whoa, (laughs) how am I possibly going to figure out which one of these things went to which side hustle and how can I deduct what? So now for every single one of my businesses and any kind of new project I do that I'm actually putting a lot of effort and actually putting legs on it, I'll open a separate bank account, I'll have a separate credit card, and all those transactions kind of live inside that silo. So that at the end of the year, I don't have to look back at my personal credit card, and let's say I'm running four different businesses, I have four different side hustles, and I'm trying to figure out which expense goes with what. It's not just a guessing game. It makes it so much easier. So what I will say is, if you are intimidated and you don't wanna start some kind of side hustle, and you don't wanna make some extra income because you're worried about the tax implications, take the... It really doesn't take that long. Take You could probably do it in an hour, setting up a bank account and setting up a credit card associated with that bank account so you can get the points for it. You could also do a debit card, but Justin and I have talked about that extensively <laughs> before. The benefits of a credit card far outweigh the negative parts of a credit card. So that's what I do. Take or leave that advice, but it has made things so much easier. You know, a funny way we could take like the episode we did kind of like about Dave Ramsey and the questions and even in this episode about paying debt off early and then lowering your tax burdens and like kind of put it together into one good scenario is like for me our company for instance matches up to nine thousand dollars on a 401k and this year you can put twenty thousand five hundred dollars into your 401k or at least the part that they can actually match off of obviously the mega backdoor for those who are listening sixty one thousand is the new 2022 limit so keep that in mind but anyway so you take that twenty thousand five hundred and let's say i'm a high income earner and that last bit of the money that I'm making is getting charged at 35% federal tax rate, right? Well, that $20,000 that I'm putting in there, by putting it in there versus doing something else with it, even if it's paying off a loan, just in the taxes it's saving me is $7,000 in this year. And if I'm someone who's going to retire early and have very little gains in the future, I'm going to be a much, much lower tax bracket. So like that's a good scenario to where like a traditional account where you're lowering your tax burden now can be more beneficial. I know there's some people who are just like Roth till you die, like you won't listen to anyone else unless it's Roth. <laughs> and then then also you're getting the $9,000 of match. So now you're sitting there 9,000 in the match plus the 7,000 you got in tax savings. That's $16,000 that you saved by putting in the 20,000. Now imagine if I would have like paid my truck off that I just bought that is at 0% interest, first of all, but like, or, or done any of these things where it's like an interest rate that is like four or less, or just any kind of loan that I have for people who think you have to pay your debts off first, I would have been living $16,000 on the table just because I put $20,000 towards a loan that was charging 4%. Like that doesn't make any sense. So that's the reason why out of, of all these things, when you're talking about paying things off first or whatever, to me, no matter what situation you're in, that 401k, especially if you have a company match, is that's where the money's got to go first because it's just so powerful. You're getting the match. You're getting free money from them. You're lowering your tax burden. It's just such a powerful vehicle. So that's my little soapbox. All right, Justin, I know we're getting into the weeds. We're kind of really nerding out. I just want to mention one last thing. and I highly, highly encourage people who are either in Justin's situation where you have access to a mega backdoor Roth at your job or in my situation where you're an entrepreneur, maybe you own a couple of businesses and you have the option of opening a solo 401k. If you earn money in your regular job and 
you don't want a mega backdoor with your regular jobs money. So let's say, you know, Justin puts in 20,500 as the employee at his regular job. He can actually open a solo 401k, have a side hustle that makes him 20, 25. Actually, it could be 40,500 per 2022's tax rules. He could have a side hustle that makes him exactly forty thousand five hundred dollars in twenty twenty two, and he could literally after use an after tax bucket, kind of do the mega backdoor Roth and do a solo four hundred one k and save a tax advantaged all of the money from that side hustle. So if you're in any kind of situation like that, this is not legal or tax advice, but please <laughs> look into it and just understand that that's an option. Because when I figured that out, I was like, why is everybody not doing this? And it's just because. We don't get taught this stuff. And it's not in the mainstream media. They probably don't want you to know this stuff. And that's what me and Justin are here for. So again, we're not going to get into that again because we really covered it in episode 136. But speaking of side hustles, Justin, another short one for us. What is the best side hustle? I could talk about side hustles for days. So I guess I want to get your opinion before I kind of get on my soapbox here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Co, you're probably a lot more versed than me. But, you know, for me, it's always been like, what are things that give me enjoyment? What are things that are simple? What are things that are extremely flexible and I can start and stop whenever I want to? Like in the past, you know, I've done uh, lift driving. I would consider doing it again. If you want to consider the fact that we're going to Airbnb the house out a side hustle, then sure, like that, that's going to be one that like the house is sitting here. We don't need to do anything for it. We're traveling anyway. It's going to be minimal effort. We can rent it out when we want to. We can, we can not rent it out when we want to. If you're a Lyft driver, you know, I was sitting downtown where I lived right next to anyway, reading a book. There's no skin off my back if no one ever booked me, but if they did, you know, go drive them around make a little money. That's the way I think of side hustles. Like I've never, because of my career field and my like professional like skills and expertise, I just personally would be very hard pressed to make as much money in side hustles as I can with my normal career. But on the outside, like if I want to sprinkle some in and I've got these things that are very easy for me to do, they don't bother me to do them. And they're very simple and I can start and stop when I want to. Those are the kind of side hustles I'm looking for. I'm not looking to squeeze out every penny this world has to offer. I'm trying to find the kind of happy medium. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction is there's side hustles, which you do in addition to your job. Then there's your side hustle becomes your job because it takes over. So I think with the first one, actually with both of them, but it has to be something that you're excited to do every day. If you're just doing a side hustle because you want the extra money, you're going to get burnt out really, really fast. So if you just want to make an extra 10,000, but you absolutely hate making that extra 10,000 doing whatever you're doing as a side hustle, that's not a side hustle with longevity. And it's not a scalable side hustle. It's not something that you're going to, you know, dedicate time toward getting better at or increasing your rates or whatever the thing might be. But I also think a lot of people don't realize how many side hustles are right at their fingertips. So you mentioned, and you know, a lot of common side hustles when someone's just thinking of the word side hustle, it's like driving for a lift, or it's like delivering Instacart, or it's freelance writing, or it's all these other things. If you have a spare bedroom and you don't mind renting that spare bedroom out, you could be making a thousand plus dollars a month on Airbnb. And that's like such a low energy. It doesn't take much for you to get that room ready. Just put a bed in it, make an Airbnb listing. And I guess you would have to not mind having other people in your house, but that's a side hustle that could make you, let's just call it a thousand dollars a month. That's $12,000 a year just for letting someone you know sleep in that bedroom. And maybe you have an in-law or maybe you have some sectioned off area if you don't want them to be 
part of your main house, but there's just like so many low friction side hustles that people don't realize, or even, you know, if you don't want people in your house, renting your car on Turo or, you know, using your garage and renting it out on neighbor and, you know, letting people use it for storage space in the sharing economy. I just see so many opportunities and people always just go back to those like trading time for money side hustles, like, you know, driving for Uber or freelance writing or all these other kind of quote unquote common side hustles where you could literally have a side hustle that takes you five hours a month and it could drastically increase your income for that year. So just wanted to say that little piece. Yeah. And the other thing that Cody was talking about where, you know, you're saying like, if it's making you miserable, that's another thing. Think about what your personality type is. Cause to me, there's like two very different personas. Like you could be somebody like me and Cody who are wired a little different to where just trying to save a dollar or making a dollar in a unique way is so like invigorating and it's so energizing that even if it on paper, like on a spreadsheet, doesn't make the most sense, like the effort that you're putting in, like if it genuinely makes you happy, then like go for it. Like if it is exciting to you and you get a kick out of it and you get a thrill out of it, go for it. But if you're somebody who it's like a drain and you're, your only focus is really on making the money and it's, you're not having any fun doing it, you know, ask yourself, like if you have a full-time career, if you put that much time and energy into trying to negotiate, upskill, take on more responsibility, could you just increase your salary by $10,000 with much less risk, worry, you know, making it much more consistent than trying to make that $10,000 outside of your work? You know, I know in this space, standard employment can sometimes be like looked down upon, but it's a very powerful tool to, you know, not let it take over your life, but to maximize it. I mean, there's so many opportunities to negotiate for more money, to make lateral moves within your own company, other companies use qualified offers that another company has given you against your own company. Like there's all these things you can do to push your income up. And I personally would much rather be able to just like have a couple conversations and all of a sudden now my salary went up $10,000 than to go around and deliver food for $10,000, you know? But that's, again, if you get a kick out of delivering the food, go for it. But just don't forget that, you know, you have your normal job that you can also push the salary balance on as well. That is a very fair point. But I'll add one more thing for those who want to make their side hustle their full-time job, and that's scalability. So when you're thinking about side hustles, a lot of the ones that we've been mentioning have been like those trading your time for money side hustles, like delivering food or like driving people around or like doing any any kind of freelance work. Grant Sabatier, who I went on his book tour with him in 2019, taught me a ton about thinking always in terms of scale. How can I scale this? so that I can start to leverage my time and my resources, my expertise. So take freelance writing, for example. You start as a freelance writer, you're trading your time, you get paid for each article or each word or however you get paid. But eventually you start to get good and maybe you hire someone under you and they start to take on some of your freelance projects. You pay them like 70 or 60% or whatever the rate is of what you're getting paid for that project. Maybe you're just doing light editorial work. After a couple of years, you have five people under you, 10 people under you. Now you have a business and you've kind of scaled your expertise, you've scaled that knowledge into something much more sustainable and something that you're not constantly just trading your time for money X to Y. Or I know an example that Grant would always use was his buddy was walking dogs. He was using Rover or WAG or one of these other apps. And he's like, you know what? I'm sick of just walking these dogs. Rover takes a huge cut. Anyway, I'm going to start my own dog walking business. So started dog walking business. He was a kid in college, ended up hiring like 20 of his friends. And he made over six figures his senior year with this dog walking business that he started in Chicago. So if you do want to replace your full-time job with a side hustle, scalability is a really great way to do that because 
you can just kind of exponentially leverage and hire more people, build better systems. And that's a lot easier than to sustain than trying to just maximize those dollars per hour doing some kind of side hustle. All right, enough about side hustles, even though I could do a five-hour episode on side hustles, but (laughs) next question, should I avoid PMI when buying a house? And Justin, I know you're super close to this since you closed a couple months ago in your house. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, going into it, I assumed that like PMI like has to be a terrible deal, that you should definitely want to avoid it like the plague, like it's some kind of extra fee they're charging you because you didn't have the money for the down payment. We had the money for the down payment, but we were really not wanting to have to pull things out of the market. And originally they weren't going to let us do uh, use the VA loan, ended up negotiating and getting to use the VA loan. So we didn't need any money down anyway, but I was doing the math and I looked at it and I know like, you know, I went online and used like a calculator for kind of generic numbers. And, you know, it says on a $500,000 house, you might be paying like a little over $3,000 a year in PMI. Actually, when we got our estimates, it, it was much lower. I don't know if it was a, a credit score thing, um, you know, my personal profile type thing, but it was actually a lot lower, but let's, let's say it was $3,000 and that's me paying $3,000 versus putting a single penny down without putting the $100,000 down to, to get the 20%. You know, $100,000 in the market, I think we could all agree on average is going to make a lot more than $3,000, which would be the equivalent of having 3% returns. So when I looked at it, I was like, okay, if they won't let us do the VA loan, I'm still not putting a single penny down. Like I was still at a 2.6% interest rate and PMI that's costing me the equivalent of 3% on those dollars that I'm pulling out, still not putting any money in there. To me at that point, the cost benefit analysis just says, I'll take that debt as long as I can take it and I'll slow roll and I'll pay the PMI. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, Justin. You kind of always got to do the math out, make sure it makes sense for your specific situation. And that's when you're buying a home as your primary residence. But I do want to highlight quickly when you're house hacking, because it's a totally different game. We recently had Jabbar Adesada on episode 159. He was house hacking to the max, living in the living room and renting out all the rooms. Now, with a purchase like that, you want to outlay the least amount of cash possible. So PMI, bring it on because you're making money from the tenants. Like if you're house hacking, you know, you want to maximize that cash flow. So let's say you're going to house hack and you're going to try to buy a new house every year. The less money you can spend on each one of those purchases, the more you'll have for that next purchase next year. So when we're talking about PMI specifically, you want to at all costs avoid putting 20% down because that might prohibit you from getting that next house hack the next year because you might not have enough capital for that purchase. So when it comes to an investment property or a house hack or something like that, PMI is pretty much always a great idea because like I said, you want to reduce the amount of capital that you have going into the deal because it's a cash flow game. All right, last question. It's a different one kind of out of left field, but it is what is a VPN? We previously had ExpressVPN as one of our sponsors. Thank you guys. And Justin, I know recently you were telling me about a kind of funny story regarding VPNs, if you want to share. So a VPN is, is a virtual private network. And basically, you know, it's the main use that people use it for is to make it so that like someone outside could not tell exactly where your traffic is coming from, from a location device perspective. Like they don't, you know, it just gives you that extra layer of security um, because they don't know exactly where you're coming from, exactly what device you're coming from. It kind of creates this barrier between you and the endpoint. Now, some small uses you could use a VPN for are like, let's say you're traveling international and you're wanting to watch a show on Netflix 
and it's not offered in that country. Well, you can go to your VPN, you can set it to make it look like you're in the United States. Boom, you can watch your normal shows or vice versa. Like sometimes they pull shows from the United States Netflix that are available in other countries. The story that Cody was referring to was actually not too long ago, you know, I realized, hey, I still got some crypto in Binance. And Binance is like, they had kind of split off to where there was like a, a the old school Binance and a, a newer one that was for like the United States. And there was some like regulatory stuff. And basically, like if you were in the United States, like you couldn't get your money out of the, of the old school Binance. I don't think you could in any of it, but it's definitely not for certain coins. And so I'm like, crap, like I got like 1600 bucks in here and I can't even touch it. And so I was like, well, uh, let's see, you know, let's get the VPN going. Now I'm magically in Mexico. Well, let me get my money out. And so now all of a sudden, like it lets you get your money out and then you could get it into another, a more reputable exchange that um, isn't kind of under scrutiny at the time. Get it into coins that, that you're more familiar with and get out all the crazy stuff. So like, anyways, it, it just gives you sometimes an opportunity to kind of like, if you're in a situation to where you're trying to access something that it's not, you can't because of your location, it can give you that. But the biggest reason most people really, really get interested in it is for the security perspective so that someone can't directly come after you, that, that there is this barrier between you and the endpoint. Yeah, funny use case for a VPN was when, I think we were in Australia and we really wanted to watch Harry Potter. So we looked up which which countries Harry Potter was on Netflix in and it was like Portugal. So we used a VPN and put our location as Portugal and boom, there comes the whole Harry Potter series. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely good if you want to protect it masks your IP address. So a lot of these big companies, Google, Facebook, Pinterest, TikTok, they a lot of times will use your IP address to like kind of creep on your web traffic. Like a lot of times you're kind of opting into them tracking your cookies and seeing what pages you're visiting and all that stuff. So when you use a VPN, a lot of that, or at least some of it can be shielded. One more thing I will say when it comes to security, I had one of my friends recently ask me because they literally had the same password for like 150 accounts. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there. Definitely not dropping names, but I just wanted to mention a few cool tools that if you aren't already familiar, you can use. So LastPass is one of the most popular password savers. Basically, you have a master password and it knows all your passwords. It can work across devices. There's also one password and Bitwarden, I think, is another one that is really popular. I don't know if you use any of those three, Justin, or another one, but that's really helps me to kind of just keep everything secure. I don't have to remember all my passwords because they're already saved on my devices with this one master password instead of being like the person who asked me, hey, how do you keep your password secure? I've been using the same one for 10 years. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So what I actually really enjoy using is uh, it's just built into Google. So if you're, you know, like for me on my Android phone, but or anything you do in a Chrome browser, even if you're not an Android user, you could be an iPhone user, Mac user, whatever it is. But anything in a Chrome browser, it can store your passwords to your account. It'll also like automatically suggest strong passwords for you. Normally, it'll try to do it automatically, but sometimes if you go to a page and it doesn't recognize it, you can kind of double click or center click in the text box and it should be an option that kind of pops down says suggest a strong password. And then you can go into your passwords. And the other nice thing is you're like, oh crap, I can't remember what my Hilton rewards password is. You know, you can, it's, you can just search it. You can just search Hilton, it'll pop up, it's there. It'll also give you warnings about like passwords that may have been compromised or it'll tell you, hey, you have 150 passwords that are the same and they're low security. You should really change those. 
And if you changed your username or anything for whatever reason, a little thing will pop up. It'll recognize that it, that's different than what you used the last time you logged in. Do you want to update it? And it'll automatically update it for you. So just the built-in Google one is what I use. And that is definitely very important. I think we might've mentioned it in another episode before. I can't remember. But if you're creating your own passwords, like you're not comfortable with these things, really length is more important than like it being a bunch of scrambled things that you can't remember. So if you want to take like an odd phrase that means something to you, like the cat is on the roof with a violin, like it's long, but it takes you no time to type. You can remember it. It's very easy. It's quick. You don't need every other letter to be a capital and a different symbol that's really hard to type. Like length is the best lever to pull as far as security goes. Alrighty, well, that's the end of our questions. Justin, it was fun hanging out. Hopefully you listeners enjoyed this type of episode. We haven't really done a Q&A type of episode before, but we had some people request it, so we figured we would do it. And we're happy to do it again if you guys liked it and let us know. We'll be posting this in the Facebook group. If you have questions for a future episode, maybe we'll put them all together and we'll answer them and do another roundup type Q&A episode. So if you want to share this episode with a friend, you want a quick summary of what we talked about today, if you forget or just want to quickly reference it you can do all of that at the slash questions that's the slash questions and as always if you want to check out our facebook group page you can do so at the slash community and we always appreciate those five star reviews they help us get great guests like we had today and if you're interested in supporting the fi show you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.